God, we confess that you are everything to us. In our most lucid moments, we know that you are everything, absolutely everything. And we come before you singing your praise and, and telling of the great things of, that you have done and, and even more of the, the great God that you are, of your, your incredible matchless character and, and the awe of the little tiny glimpses that we have of having seen you. And Father, we also confess that your word is power because you use it to shape your people. And so we pray that you would do that again this morning by the miracle of the working of your Holy Spirit. May you empower words on the page to be for us life and breath, to be for us a path to illumine the light, the, the way ahead of us, and to bring us to a more faithful following of you. Shape us by your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I just finished a book by uh, Laura Hillenbrand. The title is Unbroken. The uh, subtitle is A World War II Story of Survival, Resilience, and Redemption. Unbroken tells the story of a young bombardier named Louis Zamperini. He was a, a former Olympic athlete, a, a miler, a mile runner. Um, who survived a B-24 crash into the vast, empty Pacific Ocean and, and managed to survive for over a month on a little life raft. He and one other man survived for over 40 days, drifting in the Pacific Ocean and fighting off sharks and, and all sorts of other things, only to be eventually captured by the Japanese and, and taken to a prisoner of war camp where he stayed for several years. It's a true story, which means it's all the more fascinating, and there are parts of it that are just absolutely heartbreaking, but ultimately it's a beautiful story. I, I wholeheartedly recommend the book to you. It's, it's a big, thick book, about 400 pages, but it's, it's well worth the read. As I was nearing the end of the book, and here's the spoiler alert, if you're not familiar with your world history, the, the United States and its allies did defeat Japan, and the prisoners of war were released, those who survived uh, anyway, so I get toward the end of the book. I get to that part that I think is the climax of the book. The, the war is now over. The, the prisoners of war who had made it through all this long time in these camps had, had survived and they'd been home. And I, and I looked at the book and I still had, I don't know, 40 pages or more left or quite a bit of the book left. And I, I thought, well, I mean, what's left to be said? She's told this whole story of survival and all these different points where Zamperini could have died and, and he survived it and now he's home. What, what is left to be said? But she was a, a really gifted writer, very engaging writer, so I, I trusted that if she was going to keep writing, that it was worth my time to keep reading, that there was something still worth being said here. Now, I won't ruin the, the ending for you other than to say that there is a really beautiful and incredible moment of redemption at the very end. It's totally worth the read, and it was unexpected but totally worth the extra chapters and extra pages at the end. So if you haven't read that, I, I don't want to spoil it for you, but please do read that. And if you read it, read past the end of the war all the way to the end. In fact, it was an interesting enough story that I read all the way through even the epilogue and even the acknowledgement sections at the very end of it because it was that engaging. So an extra 30 or 40 pages just because I wanted to read every single word that she had written on this topic. Well, this morning we're in Romans chapter 16, the very last chapter in the book of Romans. Now, we, we print the, uh, the upcoming sermon texts in the bulletin each week, and I know some of you at least glance at that. It's actually a really good way to prepare for Sunday morning if you actually read over the passage beforehand and come uh, ready to uh, engage with God's Word. 
Uh, some of you will have at least seen what Romans 16 is about, and if you've seen the content of that, you might wonder what on earth I'm going to try to shake out of my sleeve in order to preach this as a sermon. I will admit that I wondered a bit the same myself early on in the week. A quick glance at Romans 16 makes it look like Paul has already said everything of value. He's already got all the content out there, and this is even worse than the last chapters of Unbroken. This is actually the acknowledgement section at the very end. You've got a lot of list of names and some things like that, but if there's anything worth skipping over in a book, it's probably the acknowledgement section. And yet, contrary to all of our expectations and contrary to even our first impressions of what Romans 16 is, there is one final lesson to be learned from the book of Romans, and it's an absolutely vital one. Without it, the whole book falls apart. So that's my little teaser to keep listening. Romans chapter 16 this morning. And I encourage you to turn there if you haven't done that. It's found on page 1,126 of the Pew Bibles. So Romans chapter 16, we'll do verses 1 through 27, the whole chapter. Uh, As we do this, we're going to ask three questions of the text before us. So three questions for Romans 16. First of all is the content question. What is left for Paul to say at this point? We start in the first two verses. Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Okay, so we start with a commendation of Phoebe. Uh, Paul wants to make sure that that Phoebe is going to receive a warm Christian welcome in Rome. Now, it's probable that that Phoebe was the one taking this letter. Uh, You don't don't just put things in the post office and put a stamp on them in those days, obviously. Uh, And it's probable that Paul was writing from Corinth. Corinth is a city a little bit inland, and Sincrea is the seaport, the major seaport due east, about half a dozen miles uh, from Corinth. So Sincrea would be a strategic position to send that letter from. You send it to the coast and then take a boat over to Rome. So it's probable that, that Phoebe was the one taking this letter. And Paul wants her to see, receive a good, proper Christian welcome. He, he gives her really glowing praise, a, a very strong stamp of approval here. He says that she is a, a deacon, my translation has it. Yours might just have she was a serving the church or a minister of the church there. Basically, it's just saying that she is active in ministry in this important town of St. Crean, near, near Corinth, where he's ministering at the moment. More than that, she's something of a, of a patron or a benefactor for God's people. She's, she's serving the church through her apparent wealth and apparent influence. So Paul says the Christians in Rome who he's writing to, they should give her everything she needs. So that might include things like room and board in a time where hotels were very different, or it might uh, include guidance around the city of Rome if she was unfamiliar with it. But basically anything she needs for her journey, he wants them to provide for her. So that's the first thing is left for Paul to say, is to, to make sure Phoebe is warmly welcomed. What else does he have to say? We're going to look at verses 3 through 16 now, and this is where it's easy for us to get lost. So I want you, I guess you have a couple of tactics to, uh, to try to not uh, lose your attention on this. One, you can try to see if I pronounce the names right, and two, you can see the descriptions that Paul lists uh, in light of those people, or three, I'll give you a third way, you can count the many times that he says Jesus or Christ or Lord. So those are your three options here, to see if I pronounce them right, to see what the descriptions of these individuals are, or to count the, the names, uh, the times that he uses Jesus Christ or Lord. So the greetings now, 3 through 16. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. That's the first time. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. 
Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Trophina and Trophosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and all the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Neros and his sister, and Olympus and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Okay, now here is where many of us get lost, right? He's got greetings to 28 different people. He's got 26 different names. They're all foreign names to us. Most of them are unfamiliar. Most of us don't know very much about these people at all. And before we talk about who these individuals are, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But, but first, I just want to see why Paul is giving such an extensive list of greetings in this book. I mean, 26 names, 28 people total. That's a lot of people to receive greetings. And it's really unusual for even Paul's letters to have that many names. I mean, at most, maybe he has half a dozen in the other books. But, but this is a really long section of uh, greetings, and it's pretty unusual. But given the nature of Paul's relationship to this church, and given the, one of the reasons that he's writing, this makes really good sense. Remember, we've said throughout that, that Paul hasn't been to this church yet. He didn't plant this church. They don't really know him personally. He doesn't have a personal connection there. One of the things he's trying to do in writing is to build that connection with them because he wants them to be part of the ministry of the gospel. He plans to go through Rome to bring the gospel to Spain. We saw that several weeks ago. This is what Paul's doing. So he wants to build a connection with them in order to bring them into the larger connection of churches that are proclaiming the gospel on the mission of God. So to do that, of course, he starts off with Priscilla and Aquila, these well-known uh, missionaries who are actually co-workers of Christ. He worked for several years in Corinth with them as vocationally, as tent makers, and in ministry as well. And it looks like they were pretty well-known in the Roman church. So that would have been a good place to start that connection. And then this whole list of names just ties that connection all the tighter. Okay, we'll get to who these people are in a moment, but, but let's continue to see the content of what Paul's saying. So he starts off with making sure that Phoebe gets a warm welcome, and then he greets all these people to build a connection with the church in Rome. What else is left for Paul to say? Verses 17 to 20. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So this is a closing warning against divisive teachers. Let's take a quick look at what he's saying here. It starts off with two commands, right? I urge you to watch out for this particular kind of teacher and to keep away from that kind of a teacher. The teachers that Paul is warning against are teaching a gospel that's different than the gospel that he has been preaching. It's, it's different than the apostolic message about Jesus Christ, the one that's the true message about Jesus. That's what he says in 17. It's a message contrary to the teaching that you've learned. So it's a different gospel. And the result of that gospel, rather than the gospel that Paul's been preaching, which builds up the church and, and brings people to obey God, that sub-gospel or pseudo-gospel that these other teachers are, are teaching leads to division. It leads to destroying people who are trying to follow God instead of building them up so that they obey God. And that result is because of the motivation. The motivation for Paul and the motivation for the apostles is to serve Jesus. But that's not the motivation here. Verse 18, they're not serving Christ, they're serving their own appetites. They're serving their own desires, their own interests. This isn't about Jesus, this is about them. Now why is Paul warning them, and why is he warning them at the very end here? I mean, it's possible that he's heard about some, some of these kind of teachers who have already made their way to Rome, but it's more likely he just understands human nature and he's had this problem in other churches. See, this is what we learn here. Paul warns them because it's always a very real danger for even healthy Christians to be turned away from the gospel to sort of a sub-gospel or a pseudo-gospel, not the true gospel of Jesus Christ that's proclaimed in the words of Scripture that Paul has been explaining the whole way through the book of Romans, but a twisted gospel, one that's a little bit different. That's the danger. There are always people out there who are going to twist the message of Jesus to serve their own desires and their own needs. And the danger, of course, is that, that they actually persuade people. That's the danger here. And that means that these teachers are not dull people and they're not boring people. If they were, they wouldn't have any followers, right? These are persuasive people. They use wise words. They use flattery. They, they use blessings. It sounds like these people know what they're talking about. Something about their message is resonating with the people that are hearing it, and that's drawing them away from the beautiful message of Jesus Christ into a sub-gospel or pseudo-gospel. There are always competing gospels. The Galatian church is a good example of what happens when people actually follow these persuasive teachers. The Galatian church, we see in the letter that Paul sends, they're, they're in danger of losing their faith because of this. They're replacing the gospel with things that sound good, sound right in some way, but is actually a twisting, a perversion of the message of Jesus. It's not the true gospel. So the Romans then must watch out for this and hold on to the true gospel. I think that's one of the reasons Paul has used the whole book of Romans to explain the gospel to them. So if that's really their heart, if they really understand the message of Jesus, then they're going to be able to spot these false teachers. They're going to be able to watch out for them and keep away from them. Now, fortunately, this warning is tied to a word of encouragement, a promise in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Okay, so here's the content so far. You've got uh, making sure that Phoebe gets a good greeting. You've got all these greetings uh, to all the different Christians in Rome to build the connection there. Then you have a final kind of word of instruction and encouragement. And then capping off before the benediction, verses 21 to 23. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. 
Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Again, we're not going to say anything about these individual people. You probably know Timothy and a couple of their names appear in the Bible. But the basic point here, again, is that Paul is building this connection with the churches. So after 15 chapters in the book of Romans, what's left for Paul to say? What's the content of chapter 16? Well, Paul wants to build up the church by sending his personal greetings and then by giving a few words of instruction. Now, we don't want to sugarcoat this, right? This, this is not the kind of passage that you would go to in your devotional time and, and kind of spend a lot of time here. This is kind of like when you're reading your Bible and, and you come across a genealogy, right? So you're, you open the book of Matthew and you say, I'm going to read the gospel of Matthew because I really want to understand who Jesus is, what he did, why he came. I want to understand Jesus better. I'm going to go to the book of Matthew. And right off the bat, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Tamar, or and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, and so forth. Most of us get to these kind of passages and we check out, at least mentally. We might kind of scan over the words out of some sense of kind of legalistic duty or whatever, but we're, we're going to read the words because it's there. You know, we want to say that we read the whole book of Matthew, but, but really we're just trying to get to something better. We're trying to get to the good parts. But if you've ever taken the time to really study these genealogies, some of them uh, turn up some really fascinating stories. The, the, Matthew's not telling you the genealogy of Jesus just to kind of bore you and get his book off to a bad start. He's telling you the genealogy of Jesus because there are some fascinating characters that God has used and put into the line of the Messiah. There's an incredible amount of truth there in that genealogy. And people like the Jews who would have read that book originally would have understood the importance of all of these names and who these people were. See, these genealogies are telling us something important, and if we just skim over them and just kind of skip to the good stuff, we're missing important lessons here. But this isn't a genealogy. It's a list of names, but you know it's got the same basic feel here. But this really brings us to the second question. We've got all of this content, all of these names, all of these greetings, but what do we learn about the church from this list of names? Well, this is where we have to ask, who are these people? We've already said something about Phoebe, the one who's bringing the letter. She's a wealthy person, a person of influence. But this is the only time she shows up in the Bible. We move from her to the greetings. And Priscilla and Aquila, again, this is a, the kind of the all-stars of the bunch. These are the people who are the, the globe-traveling missionaries. Uh, Paul, uh, Luke tells us in, in Acts that Paul met Aquila, this Jewish man, in Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila had been kicked out of Rome by the emperor Claudius when he kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And so they found themselves on the move. They met Paul in Corinth, and they were tent makers like him, so they had this vocational connection. They worked together in their, in their tent-making business, and they also worked together in ministry. Paul found these to be great co-workers with him. So after spending uh, some time together in Corinth in ministry, uh, Priscilla and Aquila joined Paul on his missionary trip to Ephesus. And we hear in Acts again what, what happened in Ephesus there. They stayed there to minister. Paul went on to the next thing, and, and Priscilla and Aquila did a really valuable ministry to the church by teaching Apollos, who was kind of a little bit of a rogue character at the beginning, teaching him the real weight of the gospel, the real truth there. Apollos had learned a little bit about it, was a good teacher, was excited about it, but he needed to be grounded in his theology. And so Priscilla and Aquila served the church globally by ministering to and teaching to Apollos. Paul clearly has a deep affection for Priscilla and Aquila. He's, he's grateful to them. They have risked their lives for him. They're co-workers in Christ. We move from these well-known, influential, globe-traveling missionaries to the more obscure, 
We don't know anything about Epinetus except what Paul says here, first convert to Christ in Asia. We don't know anything about Mary. There are other Marys in the New Testament, of course, but this Mary we don't know anything about except what Paul says. She's worked hard for the church. Who else is in this list? Verse 7, Andronicus and Junia. Paul lists them as, as outstanding among the apostles. This is probably another husband and wife ministry team. And, and when we think of apostles, we tend to think 12 or maybe Paul on top of that. But this is kind of the broader, a larger group of apostles that includes those who are charged with ministry. So this is another husband and wife uh, ministry team who are well-received, well-known among the apostles. Who else is in this list, though? Is this just kind of the, the spiritual giants? Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul lists Ampliatus. He says he's our, his dear friend. But it's, po- it's probable that Ampliatus, because of the name here, people who have studied the names here and, and, and understand something of Roman culture, the name Ampliatus probably marks him off as a slave. It's, the kind of, it's a slave kind of a name. So at a minimum, he's a former slave, a freedman, but, but probably he's a slave. That's his background. Same thing is true of Urbanus, who's listed as a co-worker in Christ. Two slaves. The name Aristobulus has a little bit more prestige uh, tied to it. That's in uh, verse 10. He might have been the brother of Herod Agrippa by that name, who had died a little bit before Paul. Apparently, they were members of his household who were Christians, followers of Christ. They, too, were probably slaves, if not servants. The name Herodian, we get a little bit later. Verse 11, Herodian was a Jewish man who, because of his name, again, looks like he was probably a servant or a slave of one of the Herods earlier in life. Verse 12, we've got Trophina and Trophosa. Those kind of similar names indicate that they might have been sisters. These are two women who, again, were, by their names, probably slaves or former slaves. And, and Paul says that they were hard workers in Christ. He uses that designation again, which uh, this might be a little bit of, a, of an ironic kind of statement because their names translate to something like delicate and dainty. So delicate and dainty, those hard workers in Christ. We also hear about Rufus in verse 13. There was a Rufus who was the son of Simon of Cyrene, the one who Mark tells us carried Jesus' cross to the site of the crucifixion. This might have been that Rufus. Okay, so those are just a few snapshots of the people that, that Paul is greeting. Most of them we don't know anywhere else in the New Testament. So here it is by the numbers. There's Phoebe, and then there's the eight people who send greetings on Paul's side, and then there are 28 people mentioned from, in Rome. 19 of them are women, or excuse me, 19 of them are men, Nine of them are women. At least four are Jews. Four appear to be from husband and wife ministry teams. Four are women who are listed as hard workers for the church. At least half and maybe a larger majority were slaves or former slaves. So what does this tell us about the Roman church? Well, at the historical level, because kind of learning from those who have studied Roman culture at this time, it looks like the ethnic and socioeconomic composition of the church in Rome is reflective of the city of Rome as a whole. And, you know, a mixture of men and women, of course, a few Jews, but mostly Gentiles. You get a lot of people who were slaves or former slaves, a few people who were a little bit more wealthy and, and kind of business associate kind of types. But the church in Rome reflects the city of Rome more largely. So here's the lesson that we learn from these names the Roman church is made up of normal Romans. It's very obvious, right? It's not the kind of groundbreaking uh, statement you were probably wishing to hear. 
I'm not oblivious to obvious statements. I, when someone finds out I'm from Alaska, there's one follow-up question that almost always happens. Can, can you guess what that is? I say I'm from Alaska, and they, they say, oh, you're from Alaska. Well, is it cold there? My brother-in-law is in Antarctica working right now, and, and he gets that question even more frequently than I do. I, I feel like he should just put his Facebook status every morning. Today, it's cold in Antarctica. Obvious statements. Pointing out that the Roman church here that we get a glimpse of is, is made up of normal Romans might seem about as helpful as saying, well, it's cold in Alaska or it's cold in Antarctica. But there's something very important for us to gain from this obvious statement, and that brings us to the third question then. What do we learn about God's work from this chapter? If the Roman church is made up of normal, normal Romans, it means that God is working among ordinary people. It means that God is working among ordinary people. I didn't hear anyone like kind of standing up and shouting amen or anything like that. Is it still a little bit underwhelming to hear that God is working among ordinary people? The long list of names here is, is interesting from a historical standpoint, at least to some of us. Some of us, it's just kind of boring because we don't really value history that much. But for some of us, like me, I, I think history is interesting. It's, it's interesting to find out who these people are. It's interesting to hear the mix of the church in Rome. But, but more important than that, it shows this that the people that God has gathered together into his church, his redeemed people, his special people, the people that he is their God and they are his people, they're not extraordinary people. The people that Paul lists here are not super saints. They're, they're not people of unusual social standing or of unusual economic standing. They're people from the whole range of Roman society. So this isn't an exclusive kind of a list, a, a kind of list that's only made up of names like, like Billy Graham or, or Mother Teresa, people that everywhere around the world knows, or at least we feel like everyone knows them, or even like kind of B-list Christian celebrities like Francis Chan or John, John Piper, who a lot of people know. This isn't that kind of list. These are people like you and me. These are normal, everyday people who God has gripped with the message of Jesus and he has gathered together and called his special people. They're not perfect people. They're not exceptional people. To put it even more obvious than that these are ordinary people, these people are human. Think about it this way. At least a few of you have watched the British period drama Downton Abbey. Uh, don't say anything about season three. We're just starting, so please don't ruin it for us. But, but Downton Abbey is this majestic estate owned by the Earl of Grantham and his aristocratic family. It's, this, it's centered on this huge uh, mansion, castle-like mansion, and, and all the grounds surrounding it, uh, hunting grounds around it. And, and it, it's the center of the whole county, really, this, this, this very self-important kind of existence where this, you, know, you live in this huge mansion, you have servants all around you, employing dozens and dozens of people who, who actually live in your house, and, and their one job is to make sure that your life is a life of comfort and ease. Everything you uh, need is taken care of. I think it's interesting to watch this as an American, especially in the 21st century, because there's such a marked and pronounced social hierarchy. I mean, here in the U.S., we have, we have things that mark us off as, as, you know, upper class, upper middle class, middle class, lower middle class, lower class. We have markers that show that, but, but here in, in early 20th century England, these are very pronounced and very overt. They're very strong symbols of class and of status. So even, even the attire that people use, or people wear, shows something about where they are in the ladder of England. 
So the aristocrats have a particular kind of dress that, of course, no one else can afford, and they wear multiple outfits in a day. You know, they have their dinner coats, and so they wear that in the evening when they have their big dinner parties, and they have kind of their everyday clothes and all that. And the servants themselves have a different kind of uniform that marks them off as the working class. And even among the servants, there are different levels. So a butler wears one level of attire, and a footman wears another, and the maid in the kitchen wears another. And you can see very quickly, this is where they are in the social status. Even how they look, what they dress like, marks them off as that. And one of the things that accomplishes is to say that mixing is strictly taboo. The strong message of that kind of societal structure, that hierarchy, to those who are the have-nots is that you are not one of us. There's the aristocracy. There's the upper level. They are set apart. They are the special ones. They are the ones around whom the whole society and the whole town, the whole county, they're the ones around which everything revolves. You might think the same thing about the church probably not on a social scale or an economic scale, but at least on a moral scale, perhaps on a spiritual scale, churches for really good people, churches for the people who have things put together, or churches for the people who are really, really spiritual, or maybe churches for the people who are really gifted, really talented, extraordinary people, great families, no problems, well put together. God must love those people best. They're, they're set apart. They're different. That's who church must be for. And then you hear about this church in Rome. And sure, you have some people who are, who are wealthy, who are influential, who are, are strong ministers like Priscilla and Aquila, Andronicus and Junia. But right alongside those names, you get Mary, who you don't know anything about. You get the slaves, Ampliatus and Urbanus. You get these sisters, Trophina and Trophosa, more slaves. From every segment of Roman society, God has gathered people for himself and drawn them together as the church. There's no one too high or too low to be gathered by God. God works among ordinary people. And that is incredibly good news for us because it means that this whole book that Paul has been proclaiming the gospel in is a message for us. It's a message for you. It's a message for you. You aren't too high or too low too ordinary for this great message. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that God has gathered a people for himself under Jesus Christ, removed them from the realm of death, moved them to the realm of life. That message is for you, no matter who you are. No matter what you have done in your life, no matter what your background is, no matter what your family history is, no matter how much money you make or how little money you make, no matter how gifted you are, no matter how ungifted you feel like you are, whether or not you have a job, whatever your, your family is like now, however messy your life has been, however messy your life continues to be, this message, this gospel is God's great word of hope to you. It's an inclusive message for everyone. It's not excluding anyone. It is including every single person. Jesus died for you when you had nothing to commend you. You were God's enemy, far away from him, distanced from him, actually opposing him, living your life in rebellion to him. Nothing you could do about it. He sent his son Jesus to change that whole reality for you. So now you are not God's enemy. Now you are not in death. You are now reconciled to God, his child, given life in Jesus Christ. That message means nothing if it's unattainable. Without this last piece, Romans 16, you might think that you have to be really special somehow to accept that message. 
But he's saying, no, everyone, no matter where you are in society, this is the message for you. God calls you to put your faith in Jesus, and that is the only thing that matters. And what we've said the last three weeks really must be taken together. So March 3rd, March 10th, March 17th, these are all part of the same conclusion here, and they must be messages that are tied together. So it all starts with the gospel. March 3rd, we looked back over the whole scope of the book of Romans and saying, this is the core message. If you don't have that, then you've missed the whole thing. There's no good going any further than that if you don't start with the gospel. God gripping people with the message of Jesus and changing their hearts. If you don't have that, you can check out now because it doesn't matter anymore. Go back and read the book again. It starts with the gospel. And then we saw last week in, in March 10th that, that God, we see, after God has gripped our hearts with the gospel, we see what he's doing all around the world, and we join in, we take up our part. And then today we are reminded that this is for everyone. This isn't for the super special people or, or even just only for the really lowly people. This is for everyone. Now, if you separate any of those things off, you're in real danger. If, so if you hear last week without having heard the gospel message before that, then you've missed the whole point. It sounds like something like, well, you've got to do something, you've got to do something. But the point is that you have to be called by Christ first. The gospel has to really deeply be rooted in your heart for any of that change to be possible. If you try to minister and join God's work without having a heart that's regenerate, then you're just wasting your time. It's totally worthless. Or you might hear last week in isolation from this week and think, well, God wants me to join his plan because I have something to bring. And for some, this is a point of great pride. Well, that's great. God can use me. God might even need me. And yet for others, it would be a point of great shame. I have nothing to bring. I'm not strong. I'm not gifted. I'm not talented. What can I bring? What this week's message teaches us is that the second person is right. As you're sitting there in your pew, you have nothing to bring to God. That is fundamental to the gospel. If you think you have something to offer God, then you and I need to have a little conversation. That's what I tell my son when he's in trouble. But seriously, if you think you have something to bring to God, you and I need to have a little conversation. I'm going to take you back to the beginning of Romans, and we're going to go through Romans 1, 2, and 3, and let me just warn you, it's not going to go well. We think it's a bad thing that we have nothing to bring to God. And this can be a, a great shame to us. But I want you to see that it is so freeing to come to that realization. It is so good to come to the point of knowing that I have empty hands. I have nothing to commend me to God. I have nothing to bring to the table. There's no shame in being a broken person. That's fundamental to the gospel message. See, we're ashamed of our weakness. We want to hide it from other people. We want to cover it up. We want to keep other people from knowing just how bad of people we are. The truth is, I think if, if any one of us knew the whole heart of another person, they never would have let us in the doors. They never would have let us in a church if they found out what's really deep within us, the things that we think about, the, the anger, the, the emotions that we have. If they knew who we really were, they'd never let a single one of us in here. It'd be an empty building. We are ashamed to come empty-handed, but that is the only way to come. Let me think about the Roman church. Some people who were gifted, I suppose, Priscilla and Aquila, were, were great ministers of the gospel. But you've got a lot of slaves there. You've got a lot of people who have nothing to bring. 
but having come to God with nothing, they have been filled. I mean, that's the whole point here. We said that God is working among ordinary people. It's not that ordinary people have somehow attained to this. It's that God is working among ordinary people. And when that happens, because God is gathering these ordinary people from all segments of society, what that means is that God himself gets the glory. These people, these ordinary people who have been changed by the gospel, they become testimonies to the matchless, awe-inspiring grace and love of God. Here's what that means for the church in practical terms. You do not need to keep hiding all of your failings and your fears and your difficulty with faith and your faults from other people. The church is not a place where we come together and try to look pretty and hide every kind of imperfection and try to make it look like we are really well put together. If that's true, then we've ceased to become a community of grace, a community of imperfect, hurting people who have received God's healing and God's forgiveness. When you and I hide our sin and we, when we pretend to be more put together than we are, we are actually robbing God of glory because it then builds the illusion that you had something to bring to the table. Let's be clear on this. The only thing that you and I have to bring to the table is sin. And that's exactly why God gets all of the glory, because you had nothing, nothing to commend you, nothing to bring, no gift that was so special that said, God said, I need that person for my church. That person is really going to put us over the top, and they're going to make us. No, the church is the gathering of broken people, imperfect people who desperately need God's grace, actual grace, actual sinners, big sins. The church is the gathering of sinful people who have been forgiven by God and become testimonies then to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you did not need the gospel, then God wouldn't get glory from your life. The people sitting next to you, The person up here, everyone among us, has nothing to commend us. We bring nothing to God except our sin and our need of his forgiveness. And that's why the gospel is such good news, because we brought nothing, and God has filled us. He has given us everything we need. We were dead. We were lost. We were hopeless. We were distant from God. We were enemies of him. We were working against his kingdom, against his good purposes. And now, having heard the gospel, let us not come together as a community of faith and pretend that suddenly now we're perfect people who don't need God. No, now, first, now, and always, we need God's actual grace because we continue to be sinners, weak, and in every moment needing God to work in our hearts. And when that happens, when we can testify to that freely among us, no longer hiding our faults and hiding our sins but confessing them together and saying God has forgiven me of even that and who gets the glory God gets the glory not us it's God and when that really sinks down deep when we really understand that God is gathering ordinary people for his glory that's the point God is gathering ordinary people for his glory when that really sinks down not just at a surface level, oh, I've heard that before, but when it really grips our hearts, when it really sinks down deep, when we understand that, yes, I really do have nothing to bring. God has gathered me, this sinful person. He has forgiven me. He has done this work in my life. When we really understand that, then then we conclude with the same thing that Paul says. Now, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, 
the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden from long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Yes, to him who is able to establish you with the gospel, to the only wise God, be all glory and all honor and all praise forever through Jesus Christ. The truth is that God is gathering ordinary people for his glory. Praise God. That is your hope. That is your source of life. This is the the powerful message that Paul has been proclaiming for so long. This is why we spent over a year on this as a church, because this is the message that has the power to change your life. Because it's the work of God through his Holy Spirit making sinful people into saints. When that happens, God is the one who receives all glory. The story of God rescuing a people, the story of God bringing people healing and wholeness, that can be your story. There's no restrictions on it. It's a story for everyone. That can be your story if you put your faith in Jesus. So praise God for turning ordinary, imperfect people from all sorts of backgrounds, with all sorts of baggage, into his special people, into his church. And so with Paul, we say, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory now and forever. Amen.